<laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're going to be uh, back in Acts today, uh, Acts chapter 5. Uh, last week we took a little break in the book of Philemon, and I think uh, it was a good, a good time. I enjoyed it, but I think it was a good break, and uh, it was needed. But uh, today, we're in, again, we're in Acts chapter 5, uh, and the title of today's message is Multitudes. Multitudes. Uh, last time we were in Acts, we looked at um, that the believers were together, a multitude of them, in fact, were together with one heart and one soul. And we thought that, wow, that could be pretty amazing for that many people to be together and have the same sort of uh, passion and ideals and even uh, agree on the same spiritual direction and spiritual things. Because, as you know, we can be in a room with 10 people and you get 20 different opinions on any sort of matter. Um, you guys need more light. I can put the kitchen light on for you. But um, they also, they, when they were together, they said that their possessions were not their own. And the point of that is, I think, was that they were not owned by their possessions. Not that they thought that, hey, we can open up the doors and anyone can come in and take anything they want from my house and I'm not going to protect my kids and family. But really, hey, I know who gave me these things. I know who bought me. If you have need of something, then what I have is certainly yours. Um, and I think the point, at least of our message that time, was it was more about uh, letting go than it was about giving. Um, it wasn't about how much do you give, what do you give, are you giving, but really, let's let go of the things in life that might own us and might take possession of us to where we might not give as much. And that could be our time, that could be our love, that could be our trust, it could be many of those things. But we saw that these believers, an example, um, maybe not exactly what to do, as far as maybe, you know, you don't need to go out and sell your car this week and give it to the poor or the church, but really that, that heart and that mindset is probably where we should be at, where, hey, the Lord has given us these things. Let's be willing to part with them if he were to ask them. And, uh, and again, not that there's anything wrong with being wealthy and not that there's anything more righteous with being poor because we see all sorts of examples of those who are righteous in the Bible and absolutely, in the world might say, filthy rich, such as Abraham or Job. Um, we said that even God is rich. Uh, and not that being poor is, is more holy either, but uh, we find that um, whatever state, like Paul said, whatever state I find myself, whether based or bound, that I would be content in that. Um, you know, again, God doesn't want your money. That's the government. God wants your heart. Uh, this time we're going to look at uh, conspiracy, appearances, discernment, destruction, fear, and multitudes. And if you missed that, that's okay, because I think we're going we're gonna to hit it. Um, but again, Acts was written by Luke. We could call this Luke 2. Uh, but the great Acts, the praxeus of the apostles, of the believers, by the Holy Spirit, where these people who were once completely different were changed by God and now used in, in mighty ways by him. And again, it was written around AD 62 or 63, so um, during the height of the Roman Empire. But before we get into the actual verses of our study, um, I have a couple questions for us and a couple verses that um, I think we should probably consider before we get into it. Uh, number one is, what is your spiritual condition? Or what is my spiritual condition at this very moment? Not five years ago, not ten years ago, not ten years from now, but right now. What is your spiritual condition? Where are you standing with the Lord? And I don't mean, what have you done? What have you given? Um, but I mean, where is your heart at? Where is your heart at? What's your relationship like with the Lord at this very moment? And with that, are you and am I, are we, taking into account where we are? Given that spiritual condition, are we even aware of it? And if we're aware of it, do we take into account? 
do we take into account? What I mean by that is, is these next few verses, I believe, is Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. It says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I think we could probably get into a real good study on any of these verses. But really, where are we? Where are we? Why? Because the days are evil. In Philippians uh, 2, 12-13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not always in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That as we're believers and as we're walking circumspectly, we're looking around, we also need to work out our own salvation. Not that we would work our salvation, that we would be saved by our actions, but because we're saved, how does that play out in your life and my life? What does that look like in your life? What does that look like in my life? And they may not look exactly the same. They may not look the same at all other than the core tenets of what the scripture says. But we need to work it out. Psalm 90 verse 12, David says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, every year, each one of us has a birthday. Maybe we don't recognize it. Maybe we don't click the counter and we're proverbially 25 for the rest of our life. I don't know. But David says, teach us, God, to number our days. To realize that our days are maybe 70 years, maybe 80 years, maybe 120 years if we're those people who eat bacon every day. I don't know. But that we would realize that our lives are short and limited and we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when the Lord is going to come back exactly. And so we need to realize that, hey, my life is short. And in doing so, we gain a heart of wisdom that as we do that, we realize, hey, well, there's things I should do and things I shouldn't do just on a practical everyday basis because life is short and what really matters to me. And, and that's wisdom. That's wisdom. In the last verse, uh, the Lord says in Matthew 12, 35 through 37, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And man, our heart plays a big role in a lot of this. And what comes out of our heart is really very evident in the words that we speak. You know, a good person, you know, quote unquote good, there's no real good person, but if you have the things of the Lord in your heart and your mind, they're gonna come out. If you have the things of the world, they're going to come out. If you have good things or evil things, they're going to overflow. But he says that even the idle words that we speak, that every little thing we do is going to be called into account one day. And is it covered by the blood of Jesus? Or are we going to have to say, well, I have no defense, Lord. I have no defense. But realize that everything we say and do uh, matters. And that's not to be a trip or a burden, but really sort of a kind of wake-up call, a sobering of going, yeah, you know, it really does matter how my life is lived. And Lord, we ask that as we get into your word, that Lord, you would help us to walk these things out, help us to live uh, justly and uh, do righteousness and walk humbly before you, God. But uh, Lord, we ask that uh, you would help us do that by your spirit, that God, we can't do it on our own. And, and you know that and you don't expect us to. So God, would you work these things out in us who have called us. And uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for your word and for these examples that we're about to see uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back, excuse me, he kept back part of the proceeds, 
his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the, the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not, your own, uh, not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And we'll stop there for right now. It says, a certain man with his wife. Now, do you and I know anyone we might qualify with the words a certain man or a certain person? I think it almost comes across as, eh, you know, there's this guy, Ananias, and his wife, Sapphira, and you know, this thing happened. You know, a certain man, a certain place. Um, maybe there's this connotation of distrust there. I don't know. I'm not a Greek scholar, but when I read it, that's kind of what I get from it. A certain man. Um, I think we all kind of maybe know someone, and, and not anyone in this room in particular, but that we can't quite get a beat on. Maybe we, we just don't know how to read them. You know, what is their motive? What is their purpose? Why are they coming to me to this, with this thing? What are they doing with this? Why do they say what they do? Um, hopefully it's not your spouse. <laughs> maybe it is, you know, sometimes, you know, honey, can you do this? Or uh, no, that's not really what I'm talking about here. But Someone we can't quite get a beat on. You know, what is their angle? What's their angle? You know, the, the political debates were on the other night, and you go, what's their angle here? You know, are they really being honest? Are they not being honest? Um, but I think here that their names are, are telling for what we're about to read. Uh, Ananias' name uh, means whom Jehovah has graciously given. That this guy's name in itself means God has graciously given. And his wife, Sapphira, uh, it's pretty simple. It's a sapphire. It's a sapphire. Maybe we don't think of sapphires as, you know, the thing. We think of platinum and gold and bling and diamonds these days. Um, uh, but God had told them, uh, had really blessed their lives. Maybe it was undeserved gifts. You know, like there was a rich and poor. And these guys, obviously, at least in name, at least in the calling of their lives, were rich. And obviously they had a piece of land that they could sell. So, um I don't think it was their own piece of land. Maybe it was their vacation home and, and the keys. I don't know what it was, but uh, they had that. They had that. Um, and this name Sapphire, again, we don't maybe think of uh, sapphires as valuable, but I think maybe in context, not that she was Roman or not that she had all these things, but in, the, in their era, uh, in the Roman era, it says their immense wealth enabled the Romans to produce highly ostentatious jewelry, incorporating precious and semi-precious stones obtained from different areas of their empire. This resulted in large, colorful jewelry using precious emeralds, diamonds, rubies, and sapphires, and the whole range of semi-precious gemstones, including garnets, jet, topaz, etc., etc. That this culture had a lot, at least in the Roman culture, had a lot of jewelry going on. I read last night that they used to wear rings on like all their fingers, and they used to wear them like up here, you know, not down here like we do, but you know, they find them all over the place because they'd always be falling off the people when they were out somewhere. Um, and maybe this lady wasn't ordained like that, uh, uh, decorated like that, but her name of Sapphire, her name in itself, you know, maybe reflected uh, her desires or her passions or uh, her parents' values in life. You know, you name your children, probably a name that, that has value to you. Um, you know, we prayed about our kids' names and we believe the Lord led us to the names we named them and they have value to us. Um, you know, people name their kids all sorts of strange things these days, but it has to do with their values. But again, it says um, a certain man with his wife. What we're look, about to look at here was a joint effort that this man and his wife did this together. Um, and not always, but usually if you have an issue with one person, you might have an issue with both. If there's a husband and wife, 
And if the husband's a little shady, might be that the wife's a little shady too. Not that's not all the time. You know, you get a creep marrying a nice person all the time. I mean, look at my wife; she married a creep. <laughs> but seriously, they were in this together. They were in this together, and maybe, um, maybe there was this was evident. Maybe that's why they were called a certain man and, and his wife because, yeah, it was. It was maybe it was kind of obvious. But to back up, to go into the last part of chapter 4, we saw, well, why were maybe these people doing it? Well, the other believers were selling off their possessions, it says. Um, maybe it was their excess. Maybe it was even out of their own need. Um, but it was in order to bless the church and to spread the gospel and take care of the people's needs. It wasn't just, let's just put up gold doors at the church. It was, well, there's people at the church with needs, so let me sell this that they might have their needs met. And it wasn't something that was prescribed. They just were together, they were praying, and hey... Let's go do this. They felt led to do this. But Ananias and Sapphira perhaps were looking on going, oh, the Johnsons just sold their thing. You know, this guy just gave his bonus. You know, this guy just quit his job to help the disciples. You know, like maybe they were looking on going, everyone else is doing it. What are we doing? And perhaps they just felt that need because everyone else was. You know, we've all kind of been in that situation where everyone else is doing it. And you're like, oh, I should probably do it too. Maybe at work they hand out... uh, they pass something around to make a collection for someone's birthday or a wedding, and you're like, well, everyone else is doing it. Let me, let me put some money in it. Or uh, what did you give? <laughs> you know, not wanting to give less or more. But they also, I think, wanted some recognition, that when they were giving, they wanted to be recognized, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, perhaps they wanted the credit where it wasn't due. We'll definitely see more of that. But maybe they were just going through the motions. Well, everyone else is giving. We should give. Maybe you've been to a church where you're forced to give and they check up on you and they send you a letter in the mail and here's the tithe envelope, <laughs> stick it in, mail it back. Uh, no, you have to put the postage on it. I don't know. Maybe we've been around those circles where there's an offering plate that's passed around. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I think it's a good opportunity in a sense for people to give. It's, it's a practical way to maybe to remind people, hey, oh yeah, I did have something in my pocket that I was intending to give today. Uh, but I think on the other side of that, it can kind of be Oh, everyone else is doing it. If I don't put my hand in, what is the usher going to think? Or what is the person next to me going to think? And, um, you know, I'll just fold up this dollar real tiny so no one knows <laughs> what denomination it is. Um, or love gifts. I don't know if you've ever been to a Christian concert or something, and they say, we're going to pass around the love gift now. And, you know, it comes around two, three times. You're like, well, I paid to get in here, right? <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think, and again, maybe, maybe the context might... Uh, might maybe more reveal our hearts than anything. But perhaps you're thinking about the widow's mites in Luke 21. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the treasury. So they're just hanging out, watching uh, the temple people come in and out. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites, uh, fractions of a penny. And he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these, uh, out of their abundance, have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Again, you know, it's about the heart. Even the temple was decorated in fine stones, maybe sapphires, I don't know. Um, I know that it was gold overlaid, and then when they sacked the temple and it melted down, they knocked every stone down, supposedly, to get all the gold out of the cracks. But that wasn't, was God, that wasn't God's concern. 
God's concerned with the people's hearts. He saw the rich people giving out of their abundance. Yeah, Bill Gates just gave a million dollars, but the guy's got billions. What's a million dollars to him? This lady has nothing, and she gives all that she has, and Jesus said, that's it, right there. But again, with these disciples we see here in the, and the believers, this giving wasn't demanded by God. There was no commandment. Peter's messages weren't about tithing, weren't about giving. It was just they were spreading the gospel, and people began to do this out of their own free will, their hearts. Um, and again, this isn't tithing per se, but an offering above and beyond the tithe. There was, man, I know how much God has done for me. Man, I just, I just have to do this. I have to do this. I'm, I want to do this. You know, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, if you come to give to God and you're like, Ugh, God's going, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't care how much money it is. Just keep it. If it's going to be that much of a problem for you, keep it. But on the flip side, I say that, that yeah, we do see the Old Testament tithing 10% um, out of obligation to the law. You know, you went out, you farmed, you had your crops. The first 10% of that harvest went to the Lord and the rest was yours, 10%. You know, even someone in the political debate mentioned that. I think God's pretty reasonable. 10%, that's not bad. No matter how much or how little we make, that's not a big deal. We say, oh, well, tithing's not in the New Testament. Well, we tend to see people giving more than 10% out of free will in the New Testament. God bless you. And it's a free will offering. You know, that being said, I don't want to turn this into a tithing or a giving message because, again, it's not about money. Again, God bless you. Um, I don't even know if I technically, as our church here, can receive gifts yet. I, I've received more counsel. I think we can. But the point is, for the time being, if you have gifts to give to the Lord, give it to another good church in the area. DC Metro, mail it somewhere if that's uh, what you're going to do. But I think the point is, a healthy start is 10%. A healthy start is 10%. It may sound like a lot at first, but believe you me, um, uh, the Lord blesses you and blesses you through it. And, and it may not be with more money. <laughs> it may not be with more money. Um, but again, tithing was done away with. And real quick, just to kind of hammer this issue home and then we'll move on. Malachi 3, 6 through 12 says, For I am the Lord and I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, In what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouses, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit of you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. You know, man, I just think, is the problem in our society the fact that we don't give to God? The reason why we're so caught up in debt as a nation is because we don't care about the things of God. And not necessarily that unbelievers should give anything, but really I think even the principle is there. If we're devoting, whether it's our money or our time or other things to God, man, our lives are going to be blessed. Do we have a lack in our life and do we have a need? Well, have we held back from the Lord? Have we held back from it? And I'm not saying name it or claim it again. I'm not saying give to the Lord $10,000 on your credit card and you'll be blessed. No, I'm saying, man, sometimes, you know, if, if my kids are hanging on to what they have and I want to give them something else, I can't give them 
something better until they let go of what they have. If my daughter picks up a piece of trash and wants to eat it, and I say no, and she doesn't let go of it, I can't give her the macaroni and cheese. That's much better for her. The same way with the Lord. You know, if we're holding tightly onto something, that thing is beginning to own us, and we're not letting go of it, we're afraid that we're never going to have anything as good or anything better again in our lives, man, we're going to miss out because it's going to destroy us. It's going to destroy us. You know, again, tithe and offerings, tithe to your church, but give offerings as well to other ministries, you know. Give your first fruits. Give your first fruits. And I hope that as we go on as a body, that as our fellowship grows, Lord willing, that we'll be able to be a blessing to other ministries and other churches and people and be able to meet those needs as time goes on. And again, these people are examples on how we should live, not necessarily how we should practically do it. So don't think this message is about selling your car or selling anything nice that you have, but really, again, what is owning us? But back to Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a possession. They sold a possession, but even though they sold it, it still possessed them. It still possessed them. The others had sold things that they had let go of already. That They let go of it, and so it didn't it didn't have the pull on them anymore. It didn't bother them to let go of it. And I think that realizing that we're bought, that you and I are bought with a price, like the scripture says, frees us up from being owned by anything else. When we realize that we're owned by Jesus, it's really hard for anything else to creep in and own us. I mean, maybe it starts and we start giving our attention or our affection or our finances to something. But after a while we go, oh, this, this just isn't satisfying. And this really is not the best that the Lord would have for me. But maybe... Ananias and Sapphira had a need, but they didn't want to admit it. Maybe they had a need, and maybe that's why, as we'll see in a minute, that they hold back. Or maybe they were just greedy. Maybe they were just greedy and said, man, this is our land, and I don't want to give all the proceeds. God never asked for it, but it shows their heart. You know, James 4, 1 through 3 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that warn your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet, and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. Um, you ask and do not receive because you ask and miss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And there's been times I've asked for stuff and I'm like, why am I really asking for this? Do I really need this? I think sometimes we hold back from God because we haven't asked God to meet our needs. We haven't asked God to meet our needs. So when time comes to give or time comes to help someone out or time comes to be generous with whatever's in our life, we go, well, I haven't asked God to meet my needs, so i got to make sure my needs are met on my own strength, and this is all I have, and I can't see past this, so sorry, I can't help. Sorry, I can't be there. We rely on our own devices to meet a need, and you know what? It never quite works out. Even if that bill is paid, maybe we have this leanness in our soul. You know, Matthew 16, 26, For what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, again, Ash and I were watching the debate um, the other night. I'm not going to give you my opinion on it, other than at one point I looked over and I, I said to Ashley, I said, you realize that everything is wrong in this country, don't you? Look at every topic that was brought up. There's something seriously wrong with everything going on in this country. You know, and maybe you guys have heard the news about abortion clinics, federally funded abortion clinics selling baby body parts. These people, oh, no problem, yeah, eating a salad. <laughs> Yeah, this much money, eating the salad. Oh, yeah, for this part, oh, we can give you whole specimens. Specimen? It's a baby. But they've totally seared their consciences and their souls, and I pray for those people because they're gone. I mean, how can you, with a conscience, eat a salad 
and talk about things like that, like it's, like it's car parts. But I think even larger, America, we care more about a lion being killed than millions of babies who are slaughtered every year. Yeah, all right, it's a lion and it was protected and maybe the guy broke the law doing it. I don't have an argument against that other than, is that really the biggest deal going on right now? Is that really what's gonna have our, our way? You know, I heard it said that any, na any nation or any people where they're, I'm butchering it because I don't have it written down, but I just remembered it, where if any nation or people that's worshiping animals or has animal worship going on, there will be human sacrifice. It's pretty obvious. But at some point, Ananias and Sapphira talked about this. Hey, babe, let's sell this and we'll give this much, but we'll say we'll, we sold it. You know, we'll sell it for $10,000, but we'll say we only sold it for $7,500. Okay, does that sound good? Oh, let's, let's say eight. Let's, let's say we'll give them eight. You know, I think eight's a little more reasonable. Okay, let's give eight. All right? Okay, all right. And they go about their business and they go do it. You know, I ask my wife about things. You know, I let her know when bills are being paid, what's coming in, what's going out. I want to get her input so I'm not the only guy with my hand in the pot, you know, because then when there's no groceries, I don't know, babe. <laughs> you know, and I got like a trunk full of toys uh, for myself. But really, I ask my wife about things because I know she can be better with money than I can. You know, financial discussions are part of any marriage, uh, but financial fights can ruin a marriage. And I think, you know, not to get into that right now, but the point is that these two people agreed on what they were going to do with this land. They agreed, they conspired, we're not going to tell the truth about this. We're going to put on airs. So what do they do? They sell this land, they take some of the money, and Ananias comes in and he laid it at the apostles' feet. The same place that everyone else laid their gift. You know, not just face to face. Hey, you know, here, here's my gift, but here you go, Peter. Here's the eight grand for that land I sold for all eight grand of it, right? It was eight grand, right? Count it, eight grand. Um, you know, I think of John 13, uh, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And, uh, you know, read it for later if you want. But Peter says, oh, wash my whole body. And Jesus says, no, 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 your feet's fine. You know, I've, you're clean, you're clean. I think this is such an intimate place, you know, lay someone at someone's feet. Um, it's someone's birthday, generally you just leave the gift on the table when you come in, or if you see them, you hand it to them. Um, but I've never laid a birthday gift at anyone's feet, or at the wedding, at someone's wedding, and I'll come in and lay it at their feet, you know? It goes in like a birdcage or something. Um, but sincerely, there was something intimate about this, and I think that, uh, you know, that these offerings of the believers are meant to care in an intimate way for the needs of others. That this was a, a love gift, a true love gift. Hey. Here it is, man. This is, I wish I could do more, but I've sold everything. Take it. Use it. You know, and I felt very loved when people cared for me. You know, I remember being out of work and having major issues, and someone came along and paid a big bill that I had. I knew they weren't rich. I knew they didn't have a lot of money. I was like, can I pay you back when I get a job? Help me pay. They're like, no, no, no. I just want to see you walking right. I want to see you following the Lord, and I just want to help you through this, man. And that's, that was it. And that was... That's how I knew this person loved me. Everything else aside, that's how I knew this person loved me. Not that they could buy me, but that they were willing to, uh, in a sense, lay down their lives uh, for me. And I hope that I've done fractions of that for others and hope that we all will. But what an ostentatious move by Ananias. You know, he didn't just leave the gift in the box in the back. He didn't just come in and sneak his tithe in the back. He came right up to Peter, <laughs> put it down at his feet, and said, this is it. This is all of it. You know, not anonymously, not trying to not get caught, but just right up to Peter's face. Yep, here you go. 
this is all of it. We just sold the Lexus for eight grand. Here it is. You know, maybe even the other two grand was in his back pocket. Maybe Peter Frist if he would have found the other cash in there. I don't know, the shekels, whatever. Maybe it was jingling as he was bending over to put down the other money. And I don't know. I don't know. But man, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty out there. That's pretty out there. You know, Peter right away though, he didn't get past him this time. Peter right away knew what was going on. You know why? Because God gave him discernment. You know, Ananias walks up, a certain man, Ananias walks up and says, here you go, Peter, $8,000, whatever the money, whatever the value was. Here you go. And Peter's like, Ananias, what have you done? You haven't lied to man. You're not lying to me, bro. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. You think you can lie to God? I think about um, uh, Jesus' discernment. You know, he knew what people were thinking in their hearts. Yeah, he's sharing something. He goes, well, I know what you're thinking. I know what's in your heart. I don't know what you guys are thinking. I can look on the outside and think and perhaps, but I have no clue what's on your heart. But Jesus did. But you know what? God will give you a word of knowledge. God will give you a word of discernment sometimes. There's times in my life when I just go, yep, that guy's weird. And it's not just me just judging like the world would say. It's just, you know, everything looks fine on the outside, but God just says something. Or God just lets you know something. And that's not to say that I'm up here and God's giving me a word on each of you. And <laughs> No, I have no clue. I have no clue. But there's times when the Lord will give you that discernment. And it's deeper. It's deeper than the world's outward judgment. Again, you know, God's able to see those things. God knows. And he'll let his people know. Um, I remember hearing a pastor once say, you know, that people always come up to him after the service and say, Are you reading my email? You know, did my wife mail you? Did my wife call you? Did my husband call you? Did my friend? He's like, no. What's your name again? I have no clue. Because everything you're talking about for the message was right to me. He's like, well, that's God. That's God reading your mail. That's God checking your voicemail. That's God speaking through his word to the things going on in your life. But he says in verse 4, Ananias, come on, man. Was this not your own? Did you not own this? Was this not your choice to sell it? Was this not your choice to bring any of the proceeds here? Why do you have to frame it in such a way? Why do you have to lie about it? You know, you could have done whatever you wanted to do with it. And you chose to come here and lie to God. You know, and holding back from God is only going to hurt us. Holding back from Him only hurts us. If, if we don't want to give everything, fine. God says, I'm not asking you for to give everything. I'm just give what's reasonable. I mean, I own everything anyway, and I bought you, you know, as we kind of saw in Philemon. Uh, Paul nudging his friend finally and going, hey, you know, remember, I got you saved. But Ananias and Sapphira didn't trust God. I don't think they believed God either. And they thought they knew better than him. Man, does that say a lot about our day and age. And I mean the church. We think we know better than God. We think we can get away with stuff right in God's presence. God, <laughs> you, you didn't see what I was just doing in the parking lot. God, praise you, God, yeah, you know, me too. There's times i got to come before the Lord and go, man, Real gut check, real hard check. You know, God is truth and lying is of the enemy. The father of lights is what the Bible calls God and light reveals everything and it's truth. But what does he call the enemy? The father of lies that, well, if you're lying, God didn't inspire you to lie. It was a little white lie. No, it was a big white evil lie. But Peter reveals the heart of this matter that they had lied to God. This wasn't just coming in, lying to the church, lying to the people around you, lying to the pastor, lying to the Apostle Peter. It was lying to God. And I think the point of that is, is that 
This wasn't about what other people thought. This passage of Scripture is about what God thinks and what God sees by our actions and from our hearts. You know, Hebrews 4, 12-13, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. That everything's bare before God. That when we come before the Lord, we may put on an air, we put on a three-piece suit and a big old church hat, but if it's not our heart in the right place, God's not impressed by these things. Again, those rich people brought all their money, and God wasn't impressed. The old lady brought a couple pennies, and he was very impressed to where we all read about it. And we go, if I had two pennies, I don't think I'd be giving it. You know, this is no joke. This is no joke. This section is no joke. We kind of gloss over this area of Scripture because it's so drastic sometimes. But it's not a joke. God wants people to see the seriousness of sin and the reality of his holiness. And that these two things are very much interrelated. Uh, you know, we can't lie to ourselves and others and expect it to be okay before God. You know, we can't expect to make it into his presence. That on that day, our whole lives, we've lied to ourselves, telling ourselves that we believe God because we went to church when we never really had a changed heart and a changed life. We never repented. And we stand before God and say, God, we did all these things in your name. And he goes, I never knew you. We can't lie and get, and get away with it. It's, you know, we may get away with it on earth. Um, I mean, again, just look at the politicians, and it's amazing what they get away with. But we won't get away with it when we stand before God. Let's go on. Verse 5. Then Ananias, uh, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me what, uh, whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church, and upon all those who heard these things. And we'll stop there. So Ananias hears this, and he falls down dead. Comes in, gives the gift. Peter says this to him. He dies. He dies. It was a heart attack. I don't know. Cut to the heart. Maybe God just poked him and he died. I'm not sure. But like we've seen others in response to God's word, they were cut to the heart. They heard it, and they were cut. Except these other people repented while Ananias was in such a state and in such an example that... God took his life. Um, does that mean that Ananias is not in heaven? No, I not necessarily would say that. Maybe. I mean, it says Satan filled his heart. So, I don't know. I'm not going to get into that argument at this point. But really, there was. this is serious. This is serious. You know, God's word, like we just read, is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I think of Peter in the garden before Jesus was arrested. And he whips out his sword and he cuts off the guy's ear. And Peter and Jesus put, heals uh, his ear, puts his ear back on and says, Peter, you know, don't worry about this right now. Um, but now we see Peter full of the Holy Spirit and he pulls out the sword of the Spirit and cuts this guy in the ear, so to speak, and the guy falls down dead. He goes from a guy who can't even swing a sword correctly and hurting somebody to now swinging the spiritual sword very accurately. And, uh, and for Ananias' case, he, he didn't get away with it. And I think that, in a sense, that's very gracious of God to deal with this right away. Say, hey, I'm not going to let this go any further. You know, there's times when my kids are misbehaving and 
I, you know, I let it go a little bit. I'm gracious with them. I calmly, you know, deal with it or I show them grace. But there's other times when it gets so bad, I have to cut it off. I say, nope, that's it. Time out right now. Or nope, come with me. We got we to gotta deal with this. We got to deal with this. It's over. Because I love them and I don't want it to get any further because I know if it gets any further, either someone's going to get really hurt or they're going to get corrupted by continuing in this path. And I think that that's the same way with this, that God in his grace and mercy saw that this man was set in his ways, was set in doing this, and other people were looking on and knew that this man was kind of this way and knew, maybe even knew what he was kind of doing. I don't know. But it had to be exposed and it had to be dealt with. And I think sometimes in the church, these things have to be dealt with swiftly and justly. And not even about giving, but about church discipline because if it goes on, it's going to corrupt everything. It's like if you have a, an infection in your mouth, you know, you need a root canal and you don't get it and then the infection spreads. If you don't deal with that, it can rot your jaw, it can spread to your bloodstream, all these crazy things because you didn't deal with it. In the same way, sometimes there's stuff that's so serious going on, God just has to deal with it right away. And you know what the result of this is? Is that great fear came upon all those who heard that anyone who heard about this fear, I mean, think about it. You hear about your friends going to church, they pass the plate, and one guy falls over dead in the aisle, and they drag him out and bury him out back. I would be a little afraid. Like, I don't know if I'm going to that church. God bless him. <laughs> but I think there's a Baptist church down the street. But, you know, it's like, man, uh, I don't know. But I think that's awesome. That's awesome that great fear struck people because they realized this is no joke. This is legitimate. That This church is real. But these four young guys, figure the young guys come to the church. I think of the young youth leaders or the college age guys come in like, hey, hey, Peter, what's, oh, man. Peter's like, go bury this guy. <laughs> you know, I, there's a joke in Calvary that, uh, the, you know, if you're around, you're, oh, you're new? You want to serve? Go stack some chairs. You know, we're always stacking chairs, always moving chairs back in the day. Where these poor guys had to bury a body. Man, um, and you think in the Jewish culture, the whole idea of where they had ceremonial uh, uncleanness, where they were around a dead body, they had to wash and couldn't go to the temple. So um, it was very interesting back in the day. But, um, but anyway, three hours later, in walks Sapphira. You know, maybe I picture her whistling as she comes in, you know. Um, it's what a crazy setup. And I think it's interesting that Peter answered her. Peter answered her. It says that Peter answered her. So she comes in and Peter answered her. So maybe I'm reading into it, maybe not, but maybe she said something. Maybe she came in and said something. Oh, Peter, hi, how are you? Oh, it's so good to see you. And I were, and I were so glad to sell our blah, blah, blah and give you this blah, blah, blah for it. Isn't it great? And Peter goes, uh, Sapphira, tell me is it true you guys sold it for so much? You know, it, I think it's great that God doesn't even give the amount. He gives the amounts of, you know, the price that Judas paid for, uh, received for Jesus and all these other amounts. But it says, just for an amount here. You know, it's not specific because, again, it's not about the amount. It's about the heart. And she goes, yeah, it was, it was that. I think that, that Peter set her up here for an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to confess, an opportunity to come forward and say, yeah, you know what? Because she didn't walk in and Peter said, down and die, you lying scum. No, he said, is this true? Is this really how much you sold it for? Really how much you sold it for? A second chance. A second chance because she hasn't totally gone in with it yet. And I think it's awesome that there was an opportunity to confess, just like with Judas at the Last Supper. Jesus said, hey, you know, I betrayed you. Judas because I deal with me, Lord, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Instead, he dips, he eats, and he goes out and does his thing and says that Satan filled his heart. And again, this whole money issue. We see two money issues and power issues. And what happens? Satan fills somebody's heart. 
You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That there's always a way out. When we're tempted, God always gives us a way out. It may be running away like Joseph and leaving your coat behind. I don't know. But there's always an opportunity. There's always an opportunity. 1 John 1, 9, 10. And Jesus even, the Lord even says through John, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Then, well, God's not a liar. So if, if we say we haven't sinned, we're saying he is. But that if we would just confess, God's willing to forgive us. He's willing to cleanse us. He just says, just tell me about it. Just tell me about it. I think that big, bold promises from, come from a lot of people in the world. I mean, again... Just to touch on the political debate, there's a lot of promises. If I'm in office, I'll do this, and I'll do that, and this is my plan. But how often does that come true? But I think even worse than that, I think Christians might be even the worst offenders in this. I'm not saying anyone here. I'm not saying anyone that maybe even we know in our circles. But there's been times um, uh, when I've been around ministry and it's either been promised to me or promised to others that I've seen. Uh, maybe even I've been one to give the big promise before, but people come in with grandiose ideas or pledges. I've got this great idea, we should do this, or I've got all this money, I'm going to give you this when this happens. Or, yeah, I'll be there Saturday morning to help you set up, or I'll be there Friday night and help that move, or I'll be, blah, blah, to give and more. But you know what? In the end, they had this big promise, this big swelling, hey, look at me, everyone else is doing it. I'm going to tell you, pastor, in front of the whole congregation, I'm going to come up and be there. And then they flake out. They're a no-show. There's an excuse. There's some other thing that came up. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Or maybe they just don't say anything. You know, Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6 says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, or, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? You know, just don't say it. No one's asking you. You know, to be practical here, I'm not asking you guys for anything. You know, don't need to feel like you need to come up and promise me anything you don't. And not saying that if you did, you wouldn't come through on it. But what I'm saying is that, man, there's no pressure. God says, hey, if you want to do it, do it. You know, don't feel like you need to promise if you feel like you can't do it. You know, because nothing ruins trust faster. It takes away future opportunity quicker than someone who says they'll blank, but they don't. You know, if I know someone has a servant's heart, like when I was in New York, and I knew people were up there, I knew they were uh, ready to serve and wanted to serve, I'd ask them to do stuff. But if, if I asked them to do things several times and they just didn't do it, I didn't necessarily take offense to it. I just said, all right, well, I'm, I guess they just don't want to do it, so I'm not going to ask them to do it anymore, and, and that's fine. And if they came to me later, hey, you don't ask me anymore. I'm like, well, you just didn't, you know, you weren't doing it, so I didn't think you wanted to do it. They're like, oh, no, I'm sorry, and things are fine. But there's other times when it's just, hey, if you don't want to do it, you know, you're not going to do it. And, and I probably don't ask people to do stuff I mean, not here, but, you know, when I was in New York, I probably didn't ask people to do stuff enough because I just, I just didn't want to deal with it. You know, if people didn't want to do it, I figured I'd just go do it and get it, and get it done with. But it's interesting that they agreed together, you know, that she was just as guilty, not only in word, but in heart, because she agreed. You know, she was fully on board. It didn't matter at first if she was kind of like, Ananias, you know, I don't know if we should do this. I don't know if we should do this. I don't know if she was that way. Maybe she wasn't. Maybe it was her idea. I don't know. But I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she did have a different motive in the beginning. But at the end, she went along with it. She agreed to it. You know, 
if you agree to, you know, if you don't want to rob the bank, but you go with your friends and you're the getaway driver, you're still the getaway driver, whether, you know, you really want to do it in the first place, you could have gotten out of the car, you could have driven away. You know, there's many other options there. You know, Romans 1, 28 through 32, and we know this area of scripture, and he gets off this big back about God's abandonment judgment, about uh, homosexuality and the, the state of societies as they're worshiping animals and turning away from God. Uh, but at the end, he says, um, at the very end, I'm not going to read it for time, but he says, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also prove to those who practice them that, man, sometimes we as believers or people know the truth of God, but we see wickedness going on and we approve of it. And because we approve of it, say, oh, that's okay, you can go do that. Um, we're just as guilty. Uh, I think we, we don't need to agree to anything ungodly or approve of anyone who does. It doesn't mean we don't love them doesn't mean we don't talk to them, but it means, well, I'm not going to support you in that. You know, you robbed that house, I'm not going to go to the pawn shop with you and help you sell it all. I think here it says that she fell at his feet. And that could reveal the real offering here. Their lives. That they went to offer this money at their feet, this lie at the disciples' feet. Um, but it led to their death. And it led to the death of his wife. He's the one who actually did it, but she agreed with it and kind of backed him up on it, and she died as well. And I think that you know we're either going to bring people up or drag them down, and people are going to bring us up or drag us down. We need to be very aware of that, that, yeah, bad company does corrupt good morals, but even more so, when we go out and venture into sin, even if our family maybe isn't totally on board with it, it still can affect them. It still can affect them. But these poor young guys come in here again. You know, what a shocker. What a day. They, come, they just get done burying Ananias. I don't know how long it takes to bury somebody. I never buried him. But only three hours later, they're coming in. Oh, we have to go back out there again. It's hot. <laughs> no, but they have to take this body. And I, I think of my, my friend who's a security guard at a hospital. And uh, he's in the process of becoming a, a state trooper. And he tells me that they apparently have to handle the bodies at the hospital. And these poor guys come in to train to be a security guard. And he's like the overseer at the hospital. And he goes, well, you know, we have to handle bodies in the morgue, and some of them can't handle. I don't know if I could do it, but he's got all these crazy stories, and I think, man, they couldn't pay me enough. Uh, but they conspired together, and they died together. And that's really not what God wants uh, for any of them. But again, the result is even more profound this time, that not only those who heard came into fear, but it says that all the church feared. So I think that maybe the church wasn't afraid at first. Maybe the church heard uh, Ananias die, and they go, oh, yeah. Certain man Ananias, it kind of makes sense that God struck him down. You know, I kind of know what he was like. But when they heard that Sapphira died too, they realized, oh, wait a minute. This isn't just a thing we can pass judgment on, that this is serious, that it's more than just maybe even doing it, but being a, a part of something that's going on. You know, even the unbelievers were probably like, but he gave. They sold that Lexus and gave almost all the money. What's the big deal? Everyone gives. You know, but there was a fear. You know, I think, you know, ever have someone say, spare some change, and you look in your wallet, and you go, well, here's two bucks. That's all I have in front of my 20. You know, not that we need to give to every homeless person we see. Maybe it's not the wisest choice all the time. But really, I think sometimes we all hold back. You know, but this time the church fears, I think it was a reality check for them, that they need to have a healthy fear, a reverence of God's power and holiness. That wasn't just a club. It wasn't just something fun. It wasn't even just... Maybe even something good and a changed life, but that God is real. 
that we can't help God out. We can't help God out. You know, there's church signs. I saw some uh, in New Jersey last week, and a friend gave me a book a couple years ago, a coffee table book of, like, ridiculous church signs. Um, But I think that the church has lost its holy view of God, and we've reduced him to some sort of pun and some sort of friend. Not that he's not our friend, but that he's a holy God. And I don't think making a, a cheesy pun about a holy God on a church sign is going to get anyone saved. I don't think any hardened atheist drives by and sees Jesus is my homeboy or something, and I go, so, you know what, i got to reconsider going to church. I mean, maybe God uses it. I don't know. But I think what the world needs to see is that God is holy and that we fear him. And as we fear him, people are going to come to him. We don't need to, to dumb God down or remove his holiness for people to come to him. He did it at the cross. He, he removed the veil at the cross, and we can come and do his holiness and, and walk away okay, but it, it, if we remove that holiness, you know, there, there's no power there. There's no power there. Let's go on. Let's read the last few verses up to 16 uh, before we close here. And it'll be quick, I hope. But in through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. It's interesting here that they're still with one accord, that even though there was a self-inflicted tragedy of Ananias and Sapphira in their body, man, the, the church was still strong. I think of... Uh, my beloved friends in New York who have gone through a lot and yet they're stronger than ever. The church is loving each other more than ever. They're doing uh, just more good things more than ever. But it says that the unbelievers didn't dare to join them, but they esteem them highly. We see a lot of people come to know the Lord, but even those who were unwilling to repent saw the reality of this. They saw that, yeah, God is holy. There is an effect. This isn't just a bunch of people playing religion, but these are people who believe God and we're just not ready to give our lives over to God yet, maybe before I die, but they esteem the church highly. And I wonder, does the world esteem the church at all these days? I don't think so. I think because we've abandoned God's holiness. We don't revere him ourselves, and so if we don't revere God, why is the world going to revere God at all? And yet I think of guys like Billy Graham or uh, um, his son Franklin or Dr. Stanley, these guys who, even when I was in total rebellion, you know, if they came on TV, I'd probably watch them and go, yeah, you know what, what they have to say is right, and then go about and do my business because I wasn't ready to repent yet. You know, I think that there are people out there that, that the world does respect in that matter. But again, it's because the holiness of God was evident in these people's lives. Um, but these multitudes come to faith, and I love that word, multitudes. It does, it, the Bible doesn't say a lot of people. It says multitudes. I think of multiplying. These people went out and multiplied and multiplied and more and more and grew and grew um, because God was real in their lives. And we see that it says men and women. We've seen all throughout Acts these different groups of people come, men in different numbers, but now it says men and women, that everyone was being added, that they were equal and yet different. Um, Again, a radical idea because women were treated less than human in some instances. They didn't have the same rights and values. Uh, But there is a difference between men and women, no matter what the TV says. And we will get into that today. But we see that uh, the men and women were both coming to faith. And I think we see a lot of times in Christianity, it's women who are coming more to the faith. 
because women can be more sensitive to the things of God. I think sometimes men were a little more stubborn. We're not as willing to be sensitive to the things of the Lord. Um, but in New York, it was pretty equal in our church. So it was pretty equal between men and women. We had a good mix of all sorts of uh, ethnicities, and I thought that was awesome. But people began to knock the church and say, it's, it's male-dominant. Well, I don't think it was male-dominant. I think it was that the men were actually stepping up and leading like they were supposed to, and the women were serving, and uh, the whole church was serving pretty much. I mean, you know, there's always issues. But in reality, it, people said it was male-dominant because every other church in the area, per se, the men weren't stepping up. There wasn't this this leadership among the men. And so, uh, but we see that here, that men and women were getting saved. Men and women were giving. Men and women were serving alongside because there's no difference in God's eyes. God says, yeah, I know you guys are different, but you're of equal value in my sight. And I think when we begin to realize that is when we begin to press forward um, in the right way. But again, what an example that all were healed. These people were giving, they were getting saved, multitudes were playing, the world around them was coming to them and saying, hey, here's our sick people, please heal them. And they were getting healed. They were getting healed. It wasn't like Peter went out and had a healing service. People knew that the power of God was in these believers' lives and they wanted to be touched by it, where even unbelievers were coming from surrounding cities. I mean, think about that. Think about that. Think about how different our world, our world would be if, if, um, you know, if people saw the holiness of God. And I think maybe even the fact that our world is so far gone, even if we totally were a perfect picture of God's holiness, that even the world probably wouldn't even come at this stage because it's so far gone. But I think, man things might be different. And as we close here, just a part of 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, it says, having a form of godliness, these people are haughty lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Um, they have a form of godliness, but denying its power. And, and Paul says in Timothy, from such people turn away, that there's people out there who claim to be believers that have put on this show of, hey, look at all I'm doing for God, but there's no holiness in their life. And Paul says to Timothy, turn away from them. Not to be mean to them, but just, you know, i got to go be involved in something else. i got to go do something else. You know, we need his power, guys. We cannot live a life of appearances. It's so hard to keep up appearances. I mean, think about how fast our hair grows, our nails grow, how fast we get smelly and need another shower, even more so spiritually. You know, we can put on a show for a little while, but eventually, oh, man, our spiritual state's going to leak out. We need to be the church. And I don't mean just us here. I mean, we need to be the church wherever we go, wherever we live, that we are the body of Jesus. And again, multitudes, they didn't go out and have a, a mass service, a revival service to get multitudes to come to church. They didn't put the fancy signs up. They didn't do any, anything that we might think or you might get a book on these days about how to grow the church, but they reached the multitudes because it wasn't about the multitude's sake. It was about the holiness of God and the reality that he loved them and that he bought them and that he was willing to, um, to change their lives. So, Father, we thank you for that, and we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for these examples that even though you had to strike swiftly at Ananias and Sapphira, Lord, we know you did it um, for a good reason, and a holy reason. You brought fear among these people, and uh, Lord, you've given us a reason to fear and to, to not be afraid, but to uh, revere you and know that you're holy. And Lord, we thank you we can come into your presence at any time we want because of your blood. And God, I pray you'd wash us and forgive us and cleanse us Help us, God, to be legitimate and sincere in your presence, God, that we might be uh, a legitimate and sincere example of you to the world. So, God, bless uh, the rest of our day. Bless uh, my brothers and sisters here. God, may you bless them and keep them. And uh, uh, may your face, Lord, as your word says, shine upon them, God. So bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen.